That's that's the difference between tragedy and horror. <laughs> horror is the world viewed through the eyes of a conservative. Tragedy is the world viewed through the eyes of a liberal. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> So welcome back, everyone. This is Wayward, episode 24, and we're joined again by Daniel Silver. Hi. And Eve Tushnet. Hello. And I'm Mark. And I'm Zap. And yeah, last week uh, we were talking about the film The Witch, and we're going to kind of blow it out into a wider discussion on horror as a genre. Um, Yeah, to get started, um, Eve, when we were talking about uh, slasher flicks, and you you mentioned um, sort of fears of bodily safety as a woman that um that kind of hits on you more that well so i'm actually not a huge slasher fan it's probably the subgenre in horror that i get into least uh but i will say there's a uh i think a lot of horror kind of icon creatures right are either about the terrifying creature turning out to be not so bad, uh, the sort of making friends with the monster story, or the uh, attractive creature turning out to be you Count Dracula or the werewolf or whoever. And I do I think that there's often a potentially I don't I don't I don't know that I have that much to say on this subject, but I I think there's a strain of. Uh, not knowing which of the people around you are actually dangerous that speaks to everybody's experience on some level, but I think has a certain extra maybe resonance with women who are trying to figure out which men they're, they're safe around. Mm. Uh, if I, if this guy, does this guy just want to say hello or ask me about the book that I'm reading? Or if I, say that I'm busy, is he going to follow me down the street for the next 20 minutes, you know, yelling at me, uh, is a real thing that happens and that there turns out to be not actually very good heuristics uh, for telling which which strangers are that guy, uh, which is similar to if you live in a world where some people are secret aliens or replicants or werewolves or what have you. Uh, so I, th- I think that's potentially a gendered kind of fear uh there's also part of part of a big um, one sort of recurring theme in horror is what if the authorities that we generally rely on to keep us safe are actually uh either powerless or untrustworthy or both uh and that's one where someone like like the, the the sort of trope of the final girl uh the the teenage girl or whoever who ordinarily would be i i you know uh, relying on stronger people who perhaps have better training with weapons to protect her because those people totally fail uh she ends up emerging as the hero uh that's in a lot of slasher movies so i think the term final girl emerged from slasher fans uh but uh 
again, sort of speaks to a broader theme of the failure of uh, authorities and purportedly strong figures and the emergence of someone who would not have even known her own power uh, as the only person left to rely on. So what are, what then are um, maybe your favorite kinds of horror films, your particular, your favorite film over, horror film overall? Um, so my actual, I always tell people my favorite is Carnival of Souls. I actually haven't rewatched it in a while, so I'm not sure how much I can say about it other than uh, it's about uh, a woman wandering through an extremely strange, unsettling landscape, and she is the most amazing, like, crazy-looking actress ever. I don't think she did anything else except Carnival of Souls, and she's perfect for it. She's like, she crash-landed into the world of this movie and then did the movie and then sailed away again into the night. Uh, so that's a, a gorgeous, strange, I think the best word for it really is unsettling uh, movie in some way about alienation, about feeling totally separate from the world around you. Uh, so that's like, again, I always tell people it's my favorite. It's, it's not the one that I've watched the most. The one I've watched the most is probably the descent. Uh, which is about a group of women who go on a trip to explore an underground cave system, which they think will be pretty simple and even like an easy time for them because they're all uh, accomplished. Uh, I don't know if athletes is the right word, but sort of sports women. Uh, And it turns out to not be that at all. Uh, And their own, the internal tensions within the group uh, come to the fore, and then there might be something in the cave. Uh, that's a great movie, mm-hmm. and really rich in character, uh, and very creepy to watch. What makes it so? I've act, I've seen that one actually, but what makes it so creepy in particular to you, more so than other films? I think for me, it's that all the women feel so real. Uh, you don't have a ton of time with them, and you certainly don't have a ton of time before things start going wrong for them. But you you feel like you know them. Uh, it's, uh, and, I, and, and then to the, the look of the movie where everything is, is very dark, uh, and sort of blood spattered and like enclosed and fright, frightening. Uh, there's also, there's a, there's a scene that I think is, fantastic uh at the beginning so they're first going down into the cave and it's this huge hole in the ground and they uh the first woman to go in who's the one who set up this trip uh repels i guess down i'm not a sports person repels down into the mouth of the cave and she stands there under this little waterfall and she yells up to the rest of them it's beautiful uh and the shot is gorgeous uh, and I think in the DVD, that scene is called the cathedral scene for no reason, except uh, it's this kind of transcendent moment of beauty right before they go down into this terrifying place. Uh, and that I think kind of captures the, uh, it's a movie that has a lot of love and respect for its characters and for what they're doing and sees like the sublimity and bravery of what they're doing, even as it's about to use all those things to kind of destroy them. <laughs> Interesting. Daniel, I know um, horror isn't so much so much your genre, but do, are there any particular ones that you like? 
Um, I have to say, not really. Actually, I can't actually think of the last like strictly horror film I watched before The Witch. Actually, um, and I, I actually enjoyed The Witch. Um, um, it, it was definitely not my thing, but it's you know it's good to try out things that aren't your thing every then and again. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm just uh, curious. Um, in a sense, as well, what makes particular you know particular horror films good or interesting? I mean, it makes them kind of like stick in your mind so i think the the ones that really scare scare me on a visceral nightmares level are the ones with creepy sounds in them <laughs> uh, ringu the Japanese thing. oh it was so good incredibly creepy sounds and literally did give me nightmares which is very rare for me mm-hmm. uh the ones that are disturbing and that like i tend to go really go for the disturbing kind of the ones where i'm like oh man that was so great it was harrowing and you're like that's that's good uh but those tend to be the ones that uh have have a deep sense of character uh, and where there's deep bonds between the characters that the movie then goes to take apart the witch obviously did this uh there's a movie that is not well enough known called uh resolution that's about to a, a man who receives a DVD, I think, in the mail from his best friend who is addicted to meth uh, and is living in Cal- in the California mountains all by himself in his hideous, like, miserable meth cabin, like, shooting off guns uh, and being a, a total whacked-out dude. And the friend decides to go and find out what's happening to him and try to save him and do a kind of, like, forcible intervention uh, and finds out that possibly what's going on in these California mountains is much, much worse than mere late-stage drug addiction. Uh, and that's one where, because the friendship of the guys is sold so well, and because the fears and the guilt that they have and the kind of uh, tilting balance of power or balance of sanity between them uh, feels so real... Uh, you, you're drawn into the deeper points that the movie's making. Mm. To, to give uh, something from horror that isn't film necessarily, um, I think you might have mentioned before, Marcus, but I know I'm really into uh, role-playing games, and one of the games that I really love recently is called Dread. Um, and this game is amazing because the only mechanic in it is this Jenga tower, and your characters to do things have to pull from this Jenga tower, and so the tension of you possibly die, because you die if the tower falls... And so the more you do, the more that happens, the closer death is. And so I, I don't like watching horror films, but I love um, like running other people through them, essentially. Um, <laughs> and, and, and for me, the thing with that is always, yeah, kind of the camaraderie between the people and the, you know, and, and the characters that come out and, you know, the, the things that either help them survive or, you know, doom them in the end. Um and one of the things that I especially love to do that that I why I like the, the the witch so much was you know secrets. There are secrets that the characters have from each other that come out at the most inopportune times that kind of make them mistrust each other and kind of you know run off in different directions and and fall into into bad things. And so uh, yeah, so that, so so just to give a little perspective, but you know that's something in the horror genre that I, I hmm. really yeah. I mean, the the thing I like the most about horror, at least for me, is more than a lot of other genres, it's very good at sort of drawing out um, maybe thoughts or anxieties I hadn't really realized I had. 
all the most memorable horror films to me, the ones that really get to me, um, are ones about either uh, possession or like replacements. Um, and a lot of it for me is the the question of like who you are. Um, so I remember um, not to connect this to you know entertainment or whatever, um, but I remember uh, my grandmother going through an awful awful prolonged uh, battle with Alzheimer's. Um, and her, not just, you know, her memory going, but like her personality drastically changing over the years. Um, and the difficulty of being like, is this, you know, even like sort of the same, the same person? Um, cause sometimes she would do something in public that was, you know, to get, like, get really mad at someone in the grocery store, you know, like things that are inappropriate. And like, you know, my mother's explanation always be like, oh, she's not really herself. Um, and so, like, horror films that play on anxieties about, you know, you know, they, they appear to be a person you know, um, or even yourself, you know, you appear to be yourself, but then there's, you know, either a force possessing you or there's been, you know, some replacement where what who they seem to be is not, you know, either who they are or they're not, you know, fully in control of themselves, that kind of thing. And that's, I realize, kind of a general anxiety and thought that bounces around in my head. That's, so that's really interesting to me because I think what I, what I find m- more likely to really get under my skin is something more on the borderline where it's not that it's replaced you. It's what, do, what counts as not being you anymore. Mm. At what point do you cross the line into being not yourself as they say so something like so like the big contrast right between the movie of the shining and the book of the shining uh the the book of the shining is all about you're within the mind of a man who is crossing that line who is going from being really disturbed and you should you should know that something's wrong but he he hasn't admitted it he doesn't quite to being someone who is completely no longer, he's not in there anymore, really. Mm. Uh, and that, to me, is really terrifying, which is like, you know, very, uh, you mentioned sort of your personal stuff, very directly, like, me as a recovering alcoholic, like, mm. The Shining is an obvious example because it's actually about that. Uh, but that that feeling of, uh, at what you know, and and I tend to prefer horror movies where the answer is that you always were yourself the whole time, even when you were doing things that other people would say, "Oh, it's not really her; it's a demon," or what have you. No, mm-hmm. it's totally you. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a movie, Ava's Possessions, which is gorgeous to look at. Sort of not not the best, most thought through movie, uh, but sort of horror comedy, and it's about. Uh, a woman who wakes up one morning to find that she has been possessed for the past several months uh, or however long it's been. And she now has criminal convictions and her family isn't speaking to her and her mother somehow lost an eye and everything in her apartment is broken and she may have killed someone and none of her friends are speaking to her. And it's this sort of everyone is treating you as if that was you and you have to figure out if it really was or not. Uh, and I think for me, the like the scariest and best answer is always, it was always you. Mm. For me, one of the most interesting things that horror does when with the movies that I enjoy is um, 
it reconnects can reconnect the viewer to the primordial chaos that you know is clearly in the creation myths of a lot of cultures and in genesis as well is the big scary thing that god was acting against in the creation narrative and continues to be overcoming through his revelation and development of a relationship with in the bible with the people of of israel and in our modern day between coming out of a christian society but then into a scientific secular society where everything is explained and mechanical and follows the rules uh, it's in horror that i think almost given the opportunity to confront the uh the real primal chaos that still is underlying or at least seems to be when we don't know the mind of god underlying our experience when we're not turned toward god and um a couple of my favorite movies that really do this are the uh, four, the first four of Rob Zombie's movies he made, the two about the Devil's Rejects and then the two Halloween remakes uh, that are so like ridiculously <laughs> gory. And I don't know, they might be too much for me at this point in my life, but when I liked them a lot, maybe almost 10 years ago at this point, uh, there was like no no fun in the in the gore and the death in the way that like a Nightmare on Elm Street movie mm -hmm. will make it kind of almost zany and or or like the Scream movies, you know, it's sort of so bombastic that it, you can't even believe that it's real and it's kind of scary but fun. But the Rob Zombie movies are like grinding, and especially the Halloween ones are sort of realistic. Um, I mean, as as extreme as realistic horror could be maybe, but still sort of realistic in a way that for me, makes me confront like the actual horrors that can be visited on us through, well, a serial killer or just even accidents, war, anything that um, destroys these bodies that when we're living in them usually feel like sort of like um, ideal objects almost, you know, like, they don't normally feel like fragile, easily destroyed objects in the physical world. With They're more like mental objects almost. And I remember one year I watched these all around Halloween time and then I am a hunter. So hunting season came shortly after that and I shot a deer in the woods and it didn't die immediately. So I had to um, cut its jugular to let it to finish it off. And after having watched all these movies of people doing that to other people, it felt so strange and surreal kind of to be, again, not doing hunting like as an ideal, idealized um, intellectual thing, but really feeling like in the physical experience of it and seeing this living thing that I was personally killing and blood was coming out of it and seeing how close and but for our god-given supernatural nature how close we all are to an animal you know and, and of course animals are being killed by the millions every day in agriculture in america so much of that stuff is kind of like sanitized and hidden from view and horror movies give me a chance to 
encounter that and have to deal with it, you know, have to reckon with it, even if it's done in a very stylized and extreme or unbelievable way. I don't think there's a lot of other occasions where chaos as a real force in our world is brought to brought to attention where we have to accept that it, it still is there, even if things have been given the impression between our religious myths and our scientific ones that everything is in its right place now, there still is chaos at the root of our experience. There's a, um, there's a guy, Sean Collins, who did a lot of writing about horror a while ago. Uh, it was very influential on me when I was first starting to, to watch and review this stuff. Uh, and he has a phrase, uh, the thing that should not be, uh, which he says is sort of is the, the key element that makes a, an image horrifying. Uh, so like an easy example would be the, uh, speaking of creepy twins, the g- girls in The Shining. Uh, they're just kind of there, you know, come play with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there's something viscerally wrong uh, about turning around and there was nothing there and now suddenly there they are. Uh, and it's sort of, it's interesting to me the way that she put that, uh, sort of the eruption of a chaos, a disruption of the order that we sort of expect from the world, because that's a miracle too, right? Is a disruption of the usual rules and sort of the the normal expected workings of the world. So what, what makes the, uh, I guess, um, what makes the difference? Is it only that the horror image hurts? Not always. Sometimes it doesn't hurt. The girls don't necessarily hurt. Uh, but there's some there's there's a disruption of order that is that has no deeper logic behind it. That has no, and that definitely does not have our good in mind. <laughs> what whether it's actively malevolent or just like unreasoning. Uh, a sort of absence of mind or reason is also really terrifying if that too can disrupt the rules of the world. So with that sort of divide between, yeah, the the horror where it's um, sort of malicious forces versus just sort of chaos, um, Eve, how do you see the relationship between horror and Christianity? Uh, well, so it sort of depends, right, on on who's writing it and what they're what they're doing with it. Um, uh, Cujo, the novel Cujo, uh, is a fantastic example of horror that's very clearly only about mindless chaos, about like the lack of any ordering reason or principle. It's all entirely natural. Everything that happens in Cujo could happen now. Uh, there's no. Uh, there's no kind of negative miracle, so to speak. There's nothing supernatural in it, uh, but it's but it's about uh, living in a universe that just doesn't care, mm. uh, and d- doesn't care about things like you know. Like I think toward, toward the very be- might even be the first line, maybe not. Uh, but we find out very early, Cujo is a good dog, uh, and a huge part of the horror of the book is that it doesn't matter. Uh, so that's a world in which there is no underlying reason or order. It's not just that you're in a really awful part of the imitation of Christ where you don't see it. 
It's that it's not there. Uh, there's other, there's a pretty strong strain in horror of uh, traditional hierarchical religion, uh, basically Catholicism in the ones that I've watched, uh, as a trustworthy guide when things really hit the fan. Uh, <clears throat> that's true even in worlds where the underlying theology is sketchy at best. Pet cemeteries, the uh, not pet cemeteries, sorry, um, Salem's Lot. Salem's Lot uh, relies heavily on Catholicism from the very, I think the opening scene talks about confession, uh, and or the prologue uh, is largely about confession. And the theology of it is not great, uh, but nonetheless, the closest you get to a trustworthy guide to what's really happening in the world of Salem's Lot is the Catholic Church, in spite of the fact that the priests themselves are a mixed bag at best. Uh, and that's, I think, relatively normal. Uh, if you get somebody who's out on his own running his own church with no particular ties to an overarching pre-modern institution, that guy is probably sketchy and scary. But a priest often will be relatively trustworthy as a guide to what's going on in a horror movie. Uh, that's, I think, part of a larger trend. This is what my Doxicon talk was about, uh, where pre-modern or anti-modern authorities are more trustworthy than, in horror than uh, rationalist, scientific, or modern authorities. Uh, and so there's one really fascinating movie where, because Christianity is also an agent of modernity, uh, it becomes the untrustworthy modern... Uh, false epistemology that has to get knocked down in favor of uh, a pre-modern epistemology. That's I Walked with a Zombie, a fantastic movie. Uh, very short, it's only an hour, uh, in which the Western Christianizing white scientific medical world is all one world, uh, and their explanations for what's happening on the Caribbean island where it's set uh, are totally wrong uh, and are ultimately overturned. You can even see this in the structure of the movie's voiceovers. The early voiceovers are provided by a white nurse, a uh, Christian white nurse, and then the final voiceover is provided by the black troubadour of the island, who is, as a bearer of folk legend uh, and native religion, the pre-modern voice, uh, and, therefore the, oh, and therefore the one who's most authoritative. Uh, that's probably the, that's the only one that off the top of my head where Christianity plays the role of untrustworthy modernity. Uh, but yeah, I think, I, I think that's a bunch of roles that Christianity can play. It's also sometimes just a sort of evil patriarchal oppressor, but that's, you know, that's definitely not the only thing that it does. Rosemary's baby would be another one with plenty to say right. uh, about, uh, Maybe it would have been better if you weren't a lapsed Catholic. Maybe, maybe you should have a relapse real soon <laughs> before you end up carrying the devil's baby. Well, I think, yeah. Um, yeah, certainly I always, that's one I always do enjoy with horror. And um, we were actually talking, um, I think, Daniel, this is when we were talking uh, last time you were on about this sort of resurgence in an interest in supernatural and popular culture 
um, at least television and film over the past like five years it feels like and you know 10 15 years ago even the um the natural explanations were so popular in um in our i mean well i mean i mean we have a tv show called supernatural now um which is about about you know two brothers going around with with you know special knowledge that that flies in the face of authority figures and you know scientific explanations um i i definitely think that there is more of an opening for kind of supernatural and transcendent like answers to things and um i'm interested I'm, I'm i'm interested to see like how much of that has to do with certain parts of society's like anti-scientific bias maybe um I don't know. It does it, sound interesting to me, like this whole mistrust of science and authority figures also comes from like one of my favorite things in the horror genre, which is actually Lovecraft um, and how like knowledge of almost any kind is actually seen as bad in that. And that that's really interesting. Um, and so to, to kind of contrast that with, you know, have with right knowledge in, in the, in the Lovecraft universe, it's almost better to just not have, knowledge almost (laughs) why is that well it's because it's because the more you know about the universe like the more you realize that it's an uncaring universe that will just stomp you not even benevolently or with intention just on accident Mm -hmm. um because the you know the elder gods the elder beings like how the universe works is so beyond the understanding of um, of us humans, you know, it, you know, to, to use the example of like a human and an ant would be to give too much uh, to the ant. Like, like these elder gods are so beyond our, our understanding. Um, and to bring science fiction into this a little bit, one of my favorite TV shows that deals with this kind of Lovecraftian idea is actually Babylon Five. Um, and Babylon Five has this wonderful overarching kind of story where it's a it's a battle between like two elder gods essentially. And, and and the humans in that are just so ill prepared for that, and just their their attempts to understand what's going on just fall short. Um, and I love the series because it doesn't provide answers; it just essentially says we just have no idea what's going on, and we have to kind of stumble around the best way we can. Um, and it, it's it, it, it's really it's it's a it's a it's a wonderful. Lovecraftian story, but it's not the best for you know us actually Christians necessarily. Well, there's there's a theme in a lot of horror from really wildly varying genre, subgenres within horror of kind of humbling pe- human pretensions to knowledge, whether that's the Lovecraft thing, or whether it's Hannibal Lecter telling Clarice, "Nothing happened to me, Clarice. I happened," uh, and the the sort of psychiatric explanations fail with him uh and one thing that i that's fascinating to me about the role that religion often plays and not always but often plays in horror is that it's a kind of quote-unquote knowledge that because it's so out of our control kind of explicitly out of our control isn't uh isn't presented as prideful in the same way it's not the priests in the exorcist father Marin, right in the exorcist is not attempting to master the world, or even that devil, right? He's merely kind of acting on uh, something given to him from outside. 
and I think that that's part of why it often escapes that kind of humiliating experience that most forms of knowledge go through in horror. Hmm. So what do you think the Christian response to horror, you know, either like as a viewer of it in literature and film or uh, extrapolating it into life, the experience of horror ought to be, um, at least intellectually, I mean, is it to sort of wave it away by saying that everything, the universe is ordered, God is in charge of everything as the sovereign, so what seems to be chaos and seems to be the power of evil really isn't. And we don't need to worry about it and have faith in that way. Or (laughs) is it to admit the reality of it and have faith in God's saving power over and above it? I mean, is horror in literature and film, is, is it essentially a lie in telling us, that the world is chaotic and there is are things to be feared for real. Well, I mean, I I think, you know, I, I've been reading recently about you know Satan as the prince prince of of the earth, you know, and, and the fact that at least here on earth, you know, we we do live in a chaotic setting and things do happen and evil happens and oftentimes that evil is beyond our understanding and and that's why I love Lovecraft so much, and you know we oftentimes face humility. In because of that, and I think I think like you said, I think the reason the reaction we need to have to that humility is one of um, is one of humility. You know, having having the humility to realize that we can't do it ourselves, and 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 to kind of turn back to God in that in that regard, and to have faith in Him, um, not to the degree of the kind of you know semi-Pelagianism that the or, or the anti-Pelagian that the that the family and the witch has you know where it's like you know there's there's nothing we can absolutely do you know it it, it is we, we do need to realize that we need god but we can also work with god and i think that's where the humility comes into play so i, th- I think the humility um to steal um eve's talk you know is really important yeah, i don't know i mean it's in in horror can have a lot of different moods right it can leave you with a feeling of salvage uh, that at the end, the things that you've seen that have been beautiful and good have in some way gained in meaning and depth because they were so threatened or even destroyed. Uh, you know, the, the the genuine bravery of the women in the descent becomes more poignant uh, because of what happens to them. Uh, or it can leave you feeling like it was all pointless. Um, both of those are real moods that people have because we are so often helpless. Um I sort of feel like honoring both of them is part of the job of art. Uh, letting letting people, giving people an artistically shaped and stylized and somehow separate from ourselves expression of those intensely helpless moods, even the ones that may seem to lead to hopelessness, uh, I think has a power of catharsis. Uh, I... I don't know if I'm just making justifications for my own artistic tastes. Uh, I think there is, when I watch something that has a deep hopelessness as its final, what it leaves you with, I do feel like there is something missing there. I don't feel like I'm seeing something true. And maybe that's 
a claim that the film or whatever shouldn't have been made. I'm not sure. Uh, I do. My instinct is to say that as long as people really perceive the world that way, there is some value in presenting it in a way that is artistically shaped. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not sure. I mean, maybe. Maybe I'm saying there's enough truth there to respond to, but that doesn't, but, but maybe the lie is ultimately more powerful. I don't know. I mean, I think your, your point about the catharsis is spot on for, for me, at least like that's the feeling I get, um, from watching horror is, you know, your emotions are up and down and all of that. Um, but like there is also a satisfying feeling to me having, you know, gone through like having a lot of like my sort of like deep set anxieties and fears thrown in my face and just, you know, rubbed in repeatedly. Um, having, you know, f- dealt with that, um, there is also, yeah, that satisfaction of like knowing I'm not just crazy or at least, you know, crazy in that, yeah. in that sense, like that th- 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 these are fears that people share that these are, you know, anxieties that exist in the world and in my head it's all a lot of you know very vague unspoken things um but then bigger right and then when you see them almost like in a theatrical presentation they're contained in a certain sense they're part of a universe of other aesthetic representations some of which are not hopeless right and like you know like that fear of you know, like what what if um like what if my faith wasn't strong enough like that's you know the fear is no doubt one that sits in my mind but like then seeing you know the witch and seeing like even if that's not necessarily like what i would hope for myself like it's still that experience of that answer of just seeing that play out where it's all the the vague what ifs in your minds and at least you know it's crystallized into like this one terrifying story and it's yeah maybe not like the comfort the little match girl and cheer up Right, um, but yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not the the answer that you might want, but like, in a way, because it's the answer you're afraid of, having that finally spoken is very like psychologically fulfilling, I think, um, and that's what makes sort of that genre, at least for me, sort of powerful and effective. Hmm. If you'd said about the witch that you saw it as a tragedy. Um, what is that, I was just thinking, what is really the difference between horror and tragedy other than, you know, sometimes jump scares and sometimes supernatural stuff? But I'm thinking of, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the book, what's called What is the What? It was about a Sudanese guy who, um, as a boy, his family, he saw his family and members of his village be killed by the uh, Janjaweed raiders and he escaped and was a refugee for a while, got relocated to America. And then as a refugee living in an apartment in America, kind of isolated, was the victim of a brutal home invasion and robbery. So it's, I mean, it could be made into a, a, a horror tale, but the way it's written and told, it's uh, just comes off as like extremely tragic, like a real sort of story of Job kind of thing. Just, and he's also a faithful Catholic all throughout the book, uh, which adds a whole new level to it where he's wrestling with how can this be happening to him and why. Uh, but yeah, it just reads as tragedy, not as horror, even though 
the kind of things that happen to him are the kind of things that do happen in horror movies. And I don't know what, like, what really separates horror from tragedy. Yeah. My, my first instinct, as you're saying this, my first instinct is to say whether what's being evoked in you is pity or fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not totally sure if that's right. But, you know, with the witch, right, like, you, you feel so bad for this family. It is so sad. Uh, and it is a horror movie in part because it's also touching on your own vulnerabilities uh, and your own potential to kind of be in that position. Uh, I'm not sure. That's my, my instinct is to say that horror plays more on making you feel fear for yourself, a kind of like personal, like what if I was the one being chased? Mm-hmm. That's why the jump scares work, right? They kind of get, get behind you as it were. Yeah. Well, and I think, um, at least, you know, like a very like traditional sense of tragedy. Like there's, you know, there's always like one, one moment of hubris or one mistake at the beginning. And it's not immediately clear how that leads to the character's downfall, but pretty much what, once those events are set in motion, there's nothing the character can do to escape, um, to escape their fate or just escape that tragic end. Um, it's not even always necessarily like a, like a, a clearly like an evil or bad action. It's just something they do that could be foolish, that could be short-sighted at the very beginning. Um, oh, so and, like Gremlins. It's the story of Gremlins, a classic threat. <laughs> or I mean like the the witch, like, you know, the, the father, like, I mean, he, he might have been very, he might have even been right in his interpretation for all we know about whatever it was. Um but once he refused to budge on that and set that in motion, like, that was the downfall of his family. Right. Um, and I mean, and Gremlins is not such a dumb example, right? Like, I've never actually seen Gremlins. I don't know. So, well, uh, it starts off with an American father bringing an exotic Eastern mysterious animal into his home after having been warned by the exotic mysterious Eastern owner of the animal uh, that it was not a good pet. Uh, and it's basically an allegory of cat ownership. <laughs> My cat is currently sitting in my lap and is very happy. Hi, Daniel. Uh, it'll be your downfall, but go on, Eve. Diana says hi, Daniel. <laughs> She's going to eat you up. But so there, there's these rules, which the uh, the the Mogwai, this thing, the Mogwai's owner, creature, I should say, it's not a thing. Uh, this creature's owner uh, says you have to follow these rules. But we know, and the owner knows, in fact, the old Chinese man who's at the beginning of the film, who's an author- a pre-modern, pre-rational authority figure, uh, par excellence, uh, knows that from the moment that the Mogwai leaves his shop in a box, it is inevitable that all three of the rules will be broken. <laughs> There's, you know, it's, it's like clockwork. You, know, you put this thing in a suburban home. And it will be exposed to light and fed after midnight and, oh, and gotten, sorry, gotten wet and above all fed after midnight, which is the one thing you must not ever do. So the whole, all the violence that then erupts later is, is present in that first moment <laughs> when the old man's grandson takes the thing out of the shop and sells it to the American. Uh, if, there, if Blockbuster still existed, I'd want to like go and like rearrange all the films. <laughs> this is a, this is a, no, this is the tragedy section now. Oh. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, like you know, like horror, strictly speaking, to me is just yeah, I mean, films that play on 
fears and anxieties, and there certainly can be overlaps. I think like, the yeah, the witch is like a good example of those. Um, but there are certainly, I think, horror films where the you know there's nothing ex you know exceptionally wrong that some of the characters have done apart from being the the wrong time in the wrong place. Yeah. Um, you know, Jaws might be also on the verge the verge of action. I don't really know what's classified as now, but like the opening scene, like a kid gets devoured by this giant shark because he was playing in the water by the beach like everyone else was, and he's just the unlucky one that was the shark picked. Like there was no like, you know, grand narrative of the downfall there. Um it was just this, you know, primordial terror of the sea. No, hmm. I mean there's a side story with the mayor. Uh, that is a story of human choices uh, causing devastation. But right, like often it's just, you know, you you happen to be in the town that Michael Myers grew up in. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> um. I wonder maybe is the essential difference between a horror and a tragedy that the tragedy works to make us focus on the victim and our response to it ought to be compassion and empathy, whereas horror works to make us focus on the threat and our response is meant to be probably fear, but might also be humility and a turning towards God and faith and hope. Well, I mean, there's a whole subgenre of, you know, the morality tale in horror as well, where, mm -hmm. you know, you say tragedy makes us feel for the victim. In a lot of horror, we're often made to think, that the victim got what was coming almost yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in some morality and, and poorly made ones. Um, well, so, okay. So two things, one uh, related. So uh, Stephen King, I just read Stephen King's book, Dance Macabre, which is his sort of theory of horror. And it's so mm. badly written by the way. Oh, oh. <laughs> uh, there's, there's like worthwhile stuff in it. Uh, but one of the things that he's, he says is that horror movies are often have a deep reactionary streak in them because they're uh -huh. about protecting against the outside threat. Mm -hmm. uh, and they really make you feel that threat. Gremlins is a fantastically interesting case because at the same time that it's uh, that the old Chinese man is the the correct authority figure in the movie, largely correct authority figure in the movie, and it ends with reconciliation between cultures. Even so, it's really clearly an allegory of fear of, like, Asian industry. Uh, oh, well, I was going to say that the, the, the Gremlins is, also has some, like, racial undertones as well, because there's a fear of, like, um, outsiders coming into the suburban neighborhood and, right. and taking it over as well. Right, right. Uh... <laughs> Well, I mean, going back to Lovecraft, speaking of racial undertones and fear of invasion from the outside and all that, right. um, I mean, his entire genre, right, is more or less built on that that particular uh, white anxiety. Yeah, I agree. And um, actually, one of the horror films that I want to see is actually um, uh, the Get Out. Um, film because mm. I've been wanting to see that. Yeah, I've been wanting to see that too. But I'm I'm not a fan of I, I don't like horror films normally. <laughs> I I want to see this one because it sounds so so amazing. And that'll really make you feel the threat of white people. Absolutely, you it's you will definitely be watching out uh, <laughs> as you leave the theater. I'm curious what um are you, do you guys know Jonathan Pejo? We had him on, as a guest on Wayward, but he's an Orthodox iconographer and writer about 
symbolic literature. No. And he, one of the what we talked about with him, and he writes a lot about, is um, monsters in sort of classical literature and scripture and fairy tales and um, boundaries and monsters being things that are on the boundaries. And one of his favorite particular ones to talk about is St. Christopher, when St. Christopher is depicted as the dog-headed saint, because a lot of, in a lot of different cultures, foreign people were depicted as being dog-headed or as speaking in barks like a dog does. And so St. Christopher represented um, a, a foreigner who was really alien but had been Christianized. And so it was a symbol of reconciliation between the domestic or the familiar and the foreign. And in fact, he also was sort of like a, he was a giant who carried people across the river, sort of like a ferryman, but without the boat. And so he helped as like kind of the guide between the river up symbolizing the border, somebody who helped keep peace and get people safely from the home to the foreign place. Um, which seems to be, you know, in the Christian world, that would be the ideal sort of relationship to have with the threatening outsider is to reconcile with them without totally assimilating them, you know. Or and, uh, the threatening outsider. That's the, the sort of conversion story. Mm-hmm. I wonder, Daniel, going back to the um, tragedy versus horror so you mentioned um, a sort of horror-based uh, tabletop RPG. Could you conceive of creating a tragedy RPG? <laughs> well, uh, you will be weeping by the end of this night. <laughs> that gets you to a point of crying. That's impressive game management. If you can make all the players break down and cry. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I, I've only had like two players break down and cry um so 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 an rpg where where i have to uh, rpg where we're feeling for the victims essentially i mean um i mean in a lot of rpgs the the whole point is that you have like these trees of choices that people can make and oftentimes like a decision they made very early on leads to like a tragic downfall um later on um and that's pretty that's a big staple of um of like rpgs <laughs> hmm. i think that would be a hard thing to do but there's a computer game that i can think of that sort of worked like that a little bit called it was called braid came out in like maybe 2008 or so that um it's a sort of a takeoff of the super mario brothers style or genre where you're going to rescue the princess but um I guess I'm not going to spoil a now 10-year-old game, but when you get to the end of it, you realize that it's been carefully crafted in a way that you're actually the monster. And the thing that you think is the monster is the hero who's saving the princess from you. And the game is interspersed with little bits of text and stuff. I mean, it's, it's created in a real cartoonish way, like Super Mario Brothers, but it's got these little bits of sort of poetic text that are unclear what they all add up to until you get to that big reveal at the end. And it, honestly, it pulled off that feeling of, um, I mean, it evoked real sadness, even though it was kind of a silly, clever, but silly looking game. But by having that big reveal and realizing that this character that you've been pushing through the world 
thought of himself as the hero and thought he was saving the princess is actually um, totally deluded and um, realized that he's a monster. And the, the tragedy of that realization, that's the only, only time I can think of where a game or a, like a role-playing type experience has had that effect and well, actually pulled it off. So, so, so I have a story from an, from an RPG that I ran a while ago. Um, where the characters are, are traveling through this unfamiliar land um, when they see a farmhouse in the distance and, and they start going towards it, but then they see these three um, orcs, you know, moving towards it. Um, and they're like, oh, no, those orcs must be going to kill the humans in that farmhouse. And so they kill the orcs um, and then go into the farmhouse expecting, you know, to have saved a family of humans and they find a family of orcs and they realize that the orcs they had killed were like the husband and sons from the family. And, and, and because of their like hubris and assumptions, they, they had killed this, you know, this family essentially. <laughs> wow. So what did they do at that point? Well, um, I want to say it ended happily, but they ended up killing the rest of the family. I, I, that, that's where I thought this was going. <laughs> When you realize you're already damned, like... Well, they, they didn't want word getting out. That they... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this uh, sounds like an allegory for America's <laughs> activities of recent years. Oh, God. I remembered what I was going to say, which was about feeling for victims versus judging them for their bad choices. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of horror movies do have the sort of like, well, maybe you shouldn't have gone in the barn in a movie called Don't Go in the Barn. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there was one movie that really struck me on this count because it's called Frozen. It is the it is an epic tale of being of of terrible people uh, who are quite spoiled, uh, leaving their cell phones behind by mistake and getting stuck on a ski lift. Uh, and there they just, like, are on a ski lift in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and what's sort of fascinating to me, a lot of people hated this movie in part because the people were so dumb. Uh, and, like, ha- they made a series of reprehensibly stupid choices to end up in this terrible situation. But for me, what made the movie genuinely, like, what made it work, right? What made it genuinely poignant uh, is that they realized stuck up on there on that ski lift, that it was all their fault. Uh, and they were really tortured by this, by in addition to the freezing cold and the fact that they might very well die and watching their friends, you know, be horribly... You know, bad things happen. Uh, they also have this realization that this is 100% all my fault. Uh, and that, to me, was by far like the saddest and really the most horrifying element of the movie. And the thing that made me deeply feel for them. Uh, and that made me relate to them, right? Like we've all, I think been in that position of realizing that something terrible is going to happen to us. And it is 1000% our fault and just dumb. Uh, and there's nothing you can do to get out of it. Uh, so that's, so that's an example of simultaneous, like the, the the very fact that they themselves are able to kind of see themselves as if they were in a horror movie. Hmm. Say, I can't believe we were so dumb as to leave our cell phones, you know, it's, and to go up in this stupid situation, which we never should have done, but we thought we were invincible, and now we're going to die. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> and I, th- I think there's something to be said for that as an expansion of the audience's moral sympathies. Hmm. Uh, 
that it makes you, I think you should then feel bad about judging the stupid protagonists of lesser horror movies. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, because isn't that like the, like what a tragic figure is, um, like in any sort of art, like literature, film or anything else. Like it's not, it's not just a character who's, you know, made bad decisions, but the one that the ones that you sympathize with through their through their mistakes and kind of feel some of their some of their pain. Which again maybe, you know, with like the cheap thrills horror films like the slasher flicks, that kind of thing, like the overall thing might be scary, but like, you know, there's a handful of character archetypes in those and beyond that, um they're pretty much just you know, pretty interchangeable interchangeable figures um or super irritating figures right like there's a there's sort of a recurring theme in horror blogs which i read a bunch of to find new things uh and there's like a recurring complaint of i i just can't be as scared by a movie or as interested in a movie where all the characters are terrible why why is it constantly like bratty youth (laughs) being picked off one by one how can anyone care uh and i think that speaks to like a a genuine desire not just for like better characterization which is like i think all movie watchers would prefer but deeper empathy right characters who even when they're making the exact same stupid or obnoxious or cruel choices uh have enough depth of character that you can see yourself in them Mm. well I think, you know, in a few minutes here, um, we can probably wrap up. So unless anyone had any, like, sort of concluding thoughts about uh, horror as a genre, what are everyone's Halloween plans? <laughs> uh, I don't have any plans yet. I, I have a party I'm going to, like, the weekend after Halloween. That's about it. Yeah, I got invited to a Halloween uh, Halloween time party, but I didn't think it was going to be a real Halloween party until the guy who invited me said he's going to dress up in a costume and uh, anybody else is welcome to. So. That's, how they, that's how they always trick you. I, yeah, I thought I thought I was uh, beyond that stage of life, and I think I am. I don't think I'm going to do it. But uh, does, does anybody have any Halloween costumes yet? My, mine right now is just like a cowboy hat or like my, my old Doctor Who costume, but that, that's about it. Which Doctor? Oh, uh, 11th Doctor. I have, like, the suspenders and the hat and the sonic screwdriver. I'm a squid. I'm always a squid. I have a hat that makes me a squid and then a t-shirt that says, Welcome Squid Overlords, and that's my costume, and it's always my costume. (laughs) I will say, though, that all of my deepest horrors involve sort of, like, deep-sea monsters, um, so I find your costume terrifying. um, And I hate Halloween. All right, well, thanks for coming on, Daniel and Eve. It's been really fun talking about horror. Thank you for having us. Yes, thanks so much. This is a fun topic. Thanks a lot. Right, you all have a good night. You good night. Take you care. Bye. Zeb, are you still on? Yes. Cool. How do you think it went? Good. I enjoyed yeah. that one, yeah. I think it was uh, nice and tight. We got through a good amount of stuff. Yeah, I was I was a little bit worried because like I mean I just I wanted to do more of an outline, never had time because I apart from like the question of like the folk like what is like the point of the the movie or like folk tale, um I didn't really have a lot that I 
thought I had to say about the movie. Um, mm-hmm. So I was glad with like the direction it took. Um, I thought the horror versus tragedy thing was really cool. Yeah, yeah, it just occurred to me, and I, that's an idea that I've never thought about. Yeah, that was um, I had never considered something like that either. But that was that actually, actually turned out to be, I think, um, a really interesting discussion. Yeah, it makes me wonder. Like, is it just aesthetics? You know, um, have you ever seen? I think maybe you haven't seen The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's. I still have not. Well, that was one of the criticisms made of it was that it was basically shot like a horror movie, like a Rob Zombie movie. <laughs> All the torture and crucifixion scenes were are very brutal. And I wonder if you would just basically rescore the movie with instead of um, you know swelling tragic strings with like stabby dissonant piano or something if you could recut it as an effective horror movie that is extremely interesting and also would make an awesome youtube project (laughs) just like turning turning films into horror movies oh that's well that is a i guess i've seen a lot more of turning horror movies into like family comedies it's a really good (laughs) one of the shining where it's like plucky um, banjo music or ukulele music and you know, Jack Nicholson hamming it up and the little kid running around. <laughs> really funny. No, I mean, it's, it's true that, yeah, the, the way the movie gets set has so much of an effect on, I mean, I get that's, I guess, sort of like one of the first points we talked about on this show, like way, way back when that like aesthetics are everything. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it tells you how you're supposed to feel about, about what's happening. Um, yeah. Right. Right. I mean, we, we definitely have comedies where tons of people die, and it's funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I need to Google Pajot in horror now and see. I'm sure yeah. he's talked about it. Yeah, certainly his takes on monsters is interesting but different. Um, yeah. And I think, and I wish I thought about this during the episode when you mentioned that, but, like, something with modernity, I think, with horror in particular is that um, it's – impossible for us to have good monsters now or benevolent monsters in the way you know and Pajot talks about um what was i gonna say oh yeah, like the that you know with um modern horror that you know the monsters the just the existence of monsters is a scary thing um as a genre now mm-hmm. um because we don't have really a category for um, dangerous but not evil or um, unsafe but not malevolent or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've... Yeah, there's some things like that. I mean, in the Peugeot sense where it's all about keeping things in their proper place and wild things and unfamiliar things and chaotic things belong in some places and not others. And if we let them in with us, that's bad. And if we go out where they are, that's bad. Yeah. I'm thinking of a movie like, was that Liam Neeson one where it's wolves? Um, was that The Revenant or is that no. a different one? That was um, Leonardo DiCaprio. Right. Um, I, but I know what you're talking about. I think they're stranded out in the woods or something, right? Yeah, it's like The Grey or something like that. It's a, kind of a dumb name it's kind of a yeah. dumb movie actually but <laughs> but the premise is like that like wolves yeah it's just called the gray wolves are not bad but 
be you as a little skinny, <laughs> weak human who needs um, a few million people to make you be an effective organism should not be in the place where wolves are. Right. Well, that, I mean, that's kind of like the um, the chaotic, unthinking horror of the woods versus the yeah. you know, the, the, the devil and his witches um, that we see in the witch. It's, just, yeah. it's dangerous either way. It's just the question of how and why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we didn't get into that, into like a, not too much an allegorical reading of uh, the witch. Both sexuality or maybe just femininity as being a, a source of chaos and disruption and evil, and then the wilderness being the same. I think, and a, a lot of times in different art and myth, the feminine is linked with the wilderness. Um, chaotic nature right like it all it all is part of the same thing and man it, like the, the male is the rationalizing and or, ordering principle right um, and this i mean i think the witch is a very reactionary movie in the way that a lot of horror is i think it really follows like fulfills that critique uh i think it's still very good but it's almost hard to not read it that way although apparently the Church of Satan endorsed it. I tried to get people to like sign the book. <laughs> All down the street, standing in line with white lipstick and one thing on their mind. Hey, little freak with the lunch pail purse underneath the paint. You're just a little girl dancing at the zombie zoo. So impulsive, you shaved off all your hair. You look like Boris Karloff, and you don't even care. You're dancing at the zombie zoo. Dancing at the zombie zoo. Painted in a corner, and all you wanna do is dance down at the zombie zoo. She disappears at sunrise. I wonder where she goes. Unseen. You might wind up restricted and over 17 It's so hard to be careful, so easy to be led Somewhere beyond the pavement, you'll find the living dead Dancing at the zombie zoo Where the 
is